Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, building the federal workforce of tomorrow can't wait until tomorrow. A new deadline with some margin for the Space Development Agency and the Army's digital transformation strategy one year in. It's Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by WEPA. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs is issuing an October 24th deadline for verification applications for veteran-owned small businesses and service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses. The verification process will move to the Small Business Administration starting in January. VA says it'll continue its training programs for the businesses. The Senate will vote today on a continuing resolution to keep the federal government funded until December 16th. The bill would have to pass the House and get President Biden's signature before midnight Friday night to avert a shutdown. Fiscal year 2023 begins Saturday morning at 12.01. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. You can vote for your choices till this Friday, and we announce the winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your last minute votes in today's show notes at the daily fewer than 10 percent of federal employees are under 30 years old and at some agencies more than half of employees are eligible to retire shane canfield is chief executive officer of wepa wepa sponsors today's daily scoop podcast shane welcome it's great to see you again my friend what changes are you seeing to the composition of the workforce that gets us to two years from now or five years from now based on the numbers that i mentioned a moment ago welcome well great to see you again francis i think the big one is a topic which is not new but that does not mean it isn't front and center and will be an issue over the next five ten years you mentioned it rightly so eligible to retire. The baby boomer generation is looking at retirement and has been COVID with this tremendous upset to the U.S. economy. I know feds uh, have good job security, but 40 million people lost their jobs in 2020. That's an astonishing number. We, we all know that. The, with the federal workforce, though, many dual earner households, and if half of your household lost their job or has job uncertainty, then people tend to want to stay in place. COVID also allowed a lot of work from home. Those two two things together pushed off a lot of people's decision to retire. And now with the economy, it's still so rocky, at least on the equity side, fixed income is coming up, but not in huge amounts. There's still a reason to, to stay working, but they will retire at some point. So this planning, succession planning, is something that really needs to be looked at and continued to be looked at and evolved and improved. You know, at our uh, office, I have to think about this too. People get to a certain age and uh, the same dynamics that I just mentioned, we didn't have a layoff at all during COVID. So, uh, but the uncertainty in in the US economy makes people wanna keep working. Um, I would say, just keep the foot on the gas with getting ready for probably tens of thousands of people retiring within a few years. All of the institutionalizing their uh, collective learnings, making sure that's passed on to the next generation, and not just with a couple of meetings, but you know, in in documentation, in writing, 
and then physical training of them for the people that will come after them. All of these things that you would do in any, it's a common sense approach, Francis, but uh, I, I do worry that uh, if a third of the workforce leaves in 10 years, oh my goodness. You get out into the agencies all the time. You're talking to folks, leaders, rank and file folks, and so on. And you flagged for me two agencies that are doing co- really cool things to attract and retain younger employees. You flagged for me the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and the Social Security Administration. What are you seeing at both of those places, Shane, that really made an impact on you as far as how to get younger folks in government and then keep them once we have them? So at the at the Geospatial Intelligence Agency, um, the younger employees are assigned one project which works its way through the entire agency top to bottom. This gives people a lens into what happens at all levels of the federal government, because not every single job obviously has the same responsibility, the same opportunity to really drive decisions and direction. That's that's a tremendously important. And in fact, I don't see that in the private sector. So I, you know, hats off to them for doing. What about social security? What did you see there? This is something you see a bit in the private center. You can spend up to 20% of your time doing projects and working for, uh, in other parts of the department to not move into that department, but just see how it works. Get a global feel of your agency or department. These kinds of creative projects really energize a young person. Uh, you know, our organization is small. Francis, compared to the federal government, but you see real excitement when somebody can see and touch other pieces of their business. Uh, It gives them a glimpse. They're not siloed anymore. It gives them a glimpse. Now, that doesn't mean you're moving them. This This isn't career training where you're moving somebody from one piece of the organization to another, which is a technique that large companies use all the time. But keep thinking creatively. This is going to inspire to not get bored, to not be siloed. You uh, flagged this for me as well. The notion of, you wrote, moving from the traditional model of a career ladder to more of a career web. I love that. I hope you wrote that so I can give you credit, Shane, because that makes a lot of sense when I envision what chief human capital officers tell me they're dealing with as far as how they try to retain younger employees who don't want to just move in, in a ladder type approach for 30 years and retire and, and move on. It's a fascinating concept, isn't it? It's um, the ladder is moving away. Um, I do think that people want to stay in one employer with one employer over time. You know, we read, I see resumes and you'll see people that jump every couple of years to not just a, a new company, a new job. This is, not a good life strategy in terms of 401ks and getting embedded in an organization, really learning it so that you can be eligible for the next entry level. But to just do the latter approach forever doesn't excite people. So, But I agree with you. The reality is that people need a more immersive experience throughout the organization. And um, that vision allowed by the web web employment experience facilitates that. All right. As I said, you're in these agencies all the time talking to these folks and and getting perspective on what they do and what they need. You're an organization that serves federal employees, not employs federal employees. How do you 
kind of flex with what is going on in the workplace so that you continue to stay aligned with what federal employees need, Shane? Yeah, we, we are, uh, as you intimate, constantly talking with them. We, uh, our board is all SES level uh, federal employees. They are non-paid. It's been that way since 1943. They bring their perspective from their agencies and workplaces. That's one piece that's exceptionally valuable. Uh, they're also members. And as a member organization, we're technically an association. We are all invested in this. It isn't like a corporation where people come in and they and they want the one to make the next stock re- report look good. That's not what's going on. So that's one piece we listen to them. And then we're out in the community, as you mentioned. You know, I was just at the uh, Blacks in Government Conference, spoke to them. Women in Federal Law Enforcement spoke to them. Um, National Hispanic Conference on FAA Employees. These are tremendous employee associations that we support on a regular basis. And Francis, I will tell you, it's we're not looking at this as we support you and therefore we're looking for X number of applications. That is not what's going on. The, the work these organizations do to train federal employees, young people in both technical skills as well as management skills. These are all volunteers at every one of these organizations I mentioned. Um, Francis, the energy that they have for the next generation, if we can bottle that and, and, and distribute it through the entire federal government, this, this is a winning formula. Your uh, annual member meeting and federal summit's coming October 20th. Uh, look forward to that. I've been there a couple of times before, and I always enjoy it. I always learn something. Thanks for letting me horn in on it, even though I'm not a member, I'm not eligible. But uh, wish you the best of luck with that, and thanks for coming on the show with me today, Shane. Thank you very much, Francis. Good to see you. You can read more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. WEPA's proudly served civilian feds through all seasons of life since 1943. Put your family's future first with WEPA's group term life insurance. Learn more at waepa.org. The Space Development Agency says supply chain challenges will delay its first launch. The first round of satellites that were supposed to go up by the end of this month won't launch now until the middle of December at the earliest. Derek Tournier is the director of the Space Development Agency at Defense Talks. He tells Defense Scoop's John Harper why he thinks that mid-December date is doable. We have uh, weeks of margin now for that December launch, so I'm confident we'll, we'll get the satellites up there. And then, uh, and then for the March launch, we're tracking, so then we'll have the full 28 satellites on orbit for Tranche Zero so that we can participate in all the exercises starting in June of 23. And can you talk a little bit about those exercises uh, for next summer? That sounds like a pretty uh, key milestone event there. So there's a lot of joint exercises that the department does uh, uh, continually, and, and some of them are are, are fairly fairly large. Uh, Northern Edge is a, is a large one that that uh, that's sponsored by by Indo PACOM, Indo Pacific Command, uh, and and that tries to to simulate how all of the joint forces would operate together. And so we want to participate because we want people to use our transport layer in space and giving them tactical data links in real time so that they could develop their techniques and procedures and con ops and use that uh, in the event that we actually need to, to have a battle with it. Great. And so uh, just in terms of the, de- so will you be using both the data transport 
satellites and the missile tracking satellites for these exercises? For the first satellites, so everything that's part, everything that we put up there, that all of our satellites are part of what we call our national defense space architecture. They all form this mesh network that put the, put the data together. So all of the tracking and transport satellites will be working in that mesh network. For the tracking satellites, for their mission to actually do the, the infrared detection of hypersonic glide vehicles and advanced missiles, those test events won't actually happen until 2024 when we have planned events ta uh, taking place just based on the timing of, of when we're actually going to be doing developments. And, you know, the uh, technologies that these new tranches are going to bring, it sounds like that could form the backbone, really, of JADC2. Is that how you view it, and is that how d other DOD leaders view the SDA architectures? Exactly, exactly. So a lot of people are really trying to focus on what is the JAD, what is JADC2, what does that mean as an architecture, et cetera. Uh, the way I look at it, JADC2, I can summarize very simply. JADC2 is getting all sensor data to any and all available weapon systems and shooters and doing that as rapidly as possible. People concentrate a lot about what that architecture looks like. Look, the only reason an architect is, uh, is famous or important is because someone actually builds the building and then you could say, who, who architected that? But it's really the build out that makes, uh, that's most important. So if you look at JADC2, what we focus on is who is actually cutting metal in the services that will be tying a services sensors and shooters together. So you have the Titan program in the Army, you have the MTC, Maritime Targeting Cell uh, program in the Navy, and then you have ABMS doing portions of that in the Air Force. The goal of SDA's transport layer is to talk to each one of those programs that are actually building, cutting metal, and making that happen within the service so that we can tie all the services together and make it a true joint environment, not stovepipe by service. And that is how the department views it. Great. And last month, uh, SDA issued a special notice seeking industry partnerships uh, to demonstrate laser communications from the Tranche 1 uh, transport layer to laser-equipped airborne platforms and potentially other platforms, I guess. So what are the advantages of this type of capability? And you know, uh, when is SDA planning to issue contracts for that? Certainly. So that's for Tranche 0. So this is for the satellites that we will be launching in December and March. We want to, to demonstrate capabilities to go laser comm down to airborne platforms. Now, we've already demonstrated, and part of our backbone has all been predicated on laser communications. The advantage of that is it allows you much higher bandwidth communication. It is, uh, it, it, it has a much better capability for, for being a, a low probability of intercept just because of the narrow beam width of, of the lasers. And it really allows you to to uh, operate in environments that are typically governed by a lot of licensing and, and with the RF spectrum that we get away from that. So what we want to demonstrate, we want to demonstrate as rapidly as possible that we can use those tranche zero satellites. We're already going to go space to space. That's planned. Space to ground. That's part of our whole infrastructure. But space to air, space to aircraft, we want to demonstrate that so we can start to field that to give our operators in the DOD other options for doing that communication. So that's what that special notice was about. And we're actually evaluating proposals that came in and we anticipate making awards, you know, before the end of this, before the end of this year, within, within the next couple of months. And are you able to say what the value of those awards would be at this point, the contract? Ah, uh, no, I don't want to go into that yet. Uh, okay. <laughs> And uh, I know uh, you've also got uh, an experimental test bed called Next, right. um, and it's my understanding that that is to test government-furnished payloads on contractor-provided satellites. Is that that's correct. correct? So Next is an acronym, and it's uh, you know I'm from the Navy, so I make an acronym out of acronyms, which is a terrible habit. But uh, Next stands for 
NDSA, which is our National Defense Space Architecture, experimental testbed. That's next. And the whole concept there is there are a lot of missions that the department can do with a proliferated architecture in low Earth orbit. Uh, there are some of those missions that we're confident we can do, like this data transport layer and the, the tracking for missiles. And then there are others that we're really still more experimental. What is the next generation tactical data links that, uh, that our services are fielding? Can we talk to those from space? We think we can. Can we, alter can we do alternative P&T? We think we can. But other services are developing payloads that we will fly on our next satellites. And if those work, then that's something that we would proliferate in future tranches. Great. So with this test bed, if you know, there are payloads that work well, you would then put it in maybe tranche one, for example, or tranche two? Tranche two. Tranche, tranche two. two. So tranche one has its own uh, version. Uh, so tranche one has the tracking satellites and the transport satellites. And then it has uh, developmental and experimental satellites that are part of tranche one as well. We call that TIDES. Tranche one, developmental and experimental satellites. Don't ask me my kids' names. So that's, 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 that's what we call TIDES. And those are flying, those are flying those are uh, flying new tactical SATCOM payloads in addition to what we're flying on our, our baseline tranche one, which is the Link 16, which goes down to all of our NATO allies and all of our partners, and then the LaserCom and KA down. And so how long will this testbed initiative last? Um, is this going to just kind of go on indefinitely as sort of a permanent experimental platform for you to just, you know, for uh, spiraling in just new capabilities to future tranches, or is there a set end date for that? So the, the whole uh, model for SDA is predicated on this spiral development model where every two years we will, we will put new capabilities in space, and so, so industry can look at that and say, SDA is not a set of very discrete programs. I mean, essentially we are, but that's not the best way to view what we're doing. We're creating this market, and you can invest and create an offering and win a fraction of that market share. And next is no different. So next will be recompeted every two years as a way to do this experimentation as, as ourselves come up with new, new uh, payloads or our mission partners. We're going to continually recompete and fly those. Great. And just, you know, in terms of the timeline, one thing I think is really interesting about uh, this SDA initiative for the tranches is that every two years, right, you're going to put up the next tranche. I mean, is that... Um, Schedule-wise, are you comfortable that SDA can meet those target goals? I know, you know, we addressed the issue with the uh, tranche zero. I mean, it sounds like you're confident with the timeline for tranche zero right now after this delay that that's going to be back on track for next year? Correct. Okay, so for future launches, are you pretty confident you can do that every two years and get a new set right. of satellites up there? Right, so let's, let's put, the, let's put this uh, timeline in perspective, and then I'll tell you the two main threats that I worry about to hit those. So the timeline has always been, if you look at our tranche zero and our tranche one and, and then our future tranche two, we always assume the timeline is 30 months from contract award to first launch. And, and then we, we do that on two-year centers, which means that we are procuring the, uh, the, the next tranche, tranche N plus one, before we've flown tranche N. And that's, that's kind of our whole plan. That's the spiral development model. And so we're doing that. So if you, if you, if you go back and say we awarded uh, the, the contracts in, uh, in September of 2020 for our tranche zero, that means 30 months puts us at the March of 2023. So that's why we, I'm, I'm confident that that 30 months works, and then we'll do those on two-year centers. So if you look at tranche one, it's the same way. We made the award, we plan for the first launch in uh, 30 months later, and then we'll do those on two-year centers. So I'm confident. Now there are the two 
the two issues that, that could be hiccups on that, which on tranche one I'm not worried about, it's already out the gate and going, you know, we've got obviously build the satellites, which is issue number two. But issue number one is that model within the department is very difficult for people to wrap their hand around. You heard from Dr. LaPlante earlier, uh, you know, we're in a great time right now within the Pentagon because we have leaders like him that are, that are focused on making sure that we can use all of these authorities that Congress has given the Department of Defense to be able to go fast. But that's a new model, this model that you use the middle tier of acquisition authorities to go fast. You use these other transaction agreements to go fast. And you do it not following a stair-step uh, waterfall model, but you do it with these spirals, which means that you're doing acquisition before you've actually flown the, the, the proof of concepts and you, you kind of have that spiral process. There's a lot of risk that, that entails uh, with that model and a lot of people in the Pentagon, are, it, it takes some coaxing to get them comfortable. So that's, that's risk number one and that's, that really is a threat more for the initiation of the acquisition than the delivery. Risk number two is the delivery and that is, you know, really hurt us during COVID times when supply chain was shut down, it was hard to get microelectronics hard to get toilet paper, but it was hard to do all that. And, and going forward though, we certainly see that now we're building hundreds of satellites instead of dozens. Uh, we, we need industry to kind of prep for that. And we've seen with this market that we're setting that industry is pre-buying and essentially they're starting to, to put some things on the shelf planning for this. And that's the model you need to get into to be able to deliver on this 30 month timeframe. Derek Tournier, director of the Space Development Agency with Defense Group's John Harper. You can find a link to the video of that conversation and all the Defense Talks discussions in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Leaders from the Defense Department, CISA, and lots of other government agencies are coming to Cyber Talks this year. It's happening Thursday, October 20th at the Waldorf Astoria in downtown D.C. You can find a link to the agenda and get the registration link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Army's digital transformation strategy is a little over a year old now. Army technology leaders intend that strategy to govern warfighting tech like Project Convergence and back office mission support functions too. Raj Iyer is the chief information officer of the Army. At Defense Talks, he tells moderator Vimesh Patel of WWT where that strategy stands a year after its release. Keep in mind, you know, the context for digital transformation of the Army is really about us trying to emulate what the private sector did about 10 years ago with digital transformation. So with digital transformation is all about new operating models, right? I mean, you can go back and look at what Netflix did or Uber or Airbnb. They all disrupted the market. So for us in the Army, with digital transformation is really about new ways of fighting. And new ways of fighting for us is things like multi-domain and JADC2. For the Army, we actually use the word CJADC2 to pass the word combined in front because absolutely critical that we work with our coalition partners um, as part of this effort. So it's built into our strategy. So digital transformation is really how we're evolving, how we fight in future with technology and digital as enablers. And so this is where the role of the CIO is absolutely critical because those key technology enablers and being data-driven is really put the CIOs now of each of the military services in a unique position and a unique opportunity that we have not had in the past. And especially for the Army with 20 years of you know, counterinsurgency in Southeast Asia, for us as we look to you know, positioning ourselves and posturing ourselves to you know, winning in large-scale combat operations, you know, especially with near-peer adversaries, it's absolutely critical that we leverage you know, commercial technologies, 
adopt them at scale, and to be able to integrate them into our warfighting efforts in ways that we have not in the past. So that was the intent of the digital transformation strategy, and I think it was the first across all of the DOD services to actually address data as that central focus for us in the Army, with technology being an enabler, but not what is how we fight, right? At the end of the day, the Army fights with our people, and I know there's been a couple of great conversations this morning already about the importance of talent and how, you know, at the end of the day, that is really gonna be our secret sauce. It's very clear what we're seeing in, in Russia today, in Ukraine today, that at the end of the day, you know, there's two things that really give us that strategic advantage. One is the strength of our partnerships with our coalition partners, and two, the, you know, the resiliency, the training, and the readiness of our soldiers, right? And those two make a tremendous difference, obviously, you know, complemented and supplemented by, uh, by technology. So I think we've come a long way. I think, as you noted, you know, we released the strategy October of last year. Come USA in a couple of weeks here, you know, will be our first anniversary of our uh, releasing our strategy. And uh, I think Rob mentioned this earlier as well. All of the services, including the Army, have made some exponential progress just in the last 12 months when it comes to data. And uh, thanks to the DOD CIO, the CDAO, and Secretary Hicks, uh, clearly I can tell you that this is no longer just a sidebar conversation. It's front and center to how you know, we truly are operationalizing data. And we have some great data points to prove it. So again, I tell people that you know, as much as we're focused on, for us in the Army, the Army of 2030 for us to get to that multi-domain force, Today, we are doing JADC2, and that is through in support of our current operations in Ukraine. For the first time, the 18th Airborne Corps, when we deployed, we went out with cloud, we went out with Starlink, right? And we used a single pane of glass as our mission command system to be able to bring data in from hundreds of data sources, terabytes of data to give you know, General Donahue the uh, decision dominance that he needs to be able to uh, you know, support operations in Ukraine. So we have proven that this can work. Now it's a question of how we scale this and how well we're gonna integrate with the other services and our coalition partners. Wow, sounds like a tremendous amount of work uh, underway and a complex undertaking, right, to modernize the Army. Uh, you know, part of the construct of, the, of JADC2 really is integrating with all the other services. So, so how is that going and how do you see uh, you know, the Army contributing uh, to JADC2. Obviously a very important effort, uh, you know, across the services. I've heard lots of folks, you know, talk yeah. about it. No, great. And there's been a, you know, in recent press, you know, a lot of discussions around, you know, how well is the DOD doing with JADC2. And I, certainly not for me to speak about that. But from the Army's perspective, I can tell you what we have been doing for the last two plus years now really is to integrate our sister services as much as possible into our experimentation efforts. So with Project Convergence, which is our capstone annual event where you know we're really experimenting with not just new technologies, but how we're going to operationalize them for the multi-domain force of the future, really is where we're starting to integrate not just assets from our sister services, but also how do we better integrate our processes and how do we work through some of the policy hurdles. And I can tell you that last year at PC21, Project Convergence 21, we had you know, all the services play in a, in a limited role. This year with Project Convergence 22 uh, coming out here in a couple of months, we're gonna have much greater integration uh, you know, of assets as well as um, you know, mission threads 
you know, for sensitive shooter between, you know, the services. So, so we're going out and engaging actively with the other services. One of the things we've been doing for the last several months is to really bring the other services into our joint system integration lab at Aberdeen. So this is where we're doing a lot of modeling and simulation upfront to look at, you know, take each of the operational mission threads and look at all the systems that are, will be part of those operational scenarios and then look at data interoperability challenges and data integration challenges. So if we can get ahead of that in a, in a modeling and simulation environment, then it gets much easier for us when we go to the dirt and then we start to do this, you know, with live exercises. The other thing we're doing with PC22 this year is we're, for the first time, we're bringing the Brits and the Australians with, with us as well. So you're going to see us exchange, you know, sensor data with our coalition partners, with our 5i partners, being able to leverage, you know, and integrate that data through our mission command systems and our, and our um, um, you know, uh, IBCS, integrated battle command systems and so on, and to be able to, um, you know, call for fires uh, from any, uh, any services, um, assets that might be out there. So, so tremendous efforts being made, but in addition to that, I think the part where we really need to work together is to continue to work on interoperability across the systems, because each of our weapon systems have come up with service unique requirements, and then what we're doing really today with JADC2 is we're putting them to use in ways we, they were not originally designed to. And that's where I think it's important that we make sure that we work together to make sure that we continue to look at those interoperability standards. Uh, interoperability, uh, critically important, uh, you know, where is the governance uh, for that coming from? Are you being delivered a set of standards and saying, hey, here's how to be interoperable? Uh, you know, how, how are you addressing that with the other services? Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, I think, is an area where we have to obviously improve in, in, in the DOD. And I can tell you that uh, it's been a bottoms-up approach was for us in the Army to date, where we have collectively come, worked with the other services to come up with a set of standards to say, okay, you know, hey, this is what works for us. This is work for you. This is work for you, Air Force. What are your challenges? And so on. So it's been a bottoms-up approach to say, okay, how do we come up with the right set of standards uh, for, the, for the most important operational mission threads. And then, you know, the approach we've taken is to push it then up to the DOD level and then up to NATO, because again, you know, we're gonna fight, fight join, we gotta make sure that these get codified into NATO standards. So I would say, you know, anytime, we, you know, for any of you involved in this you know, standards process, you know, it's a long and painful process. And it's one that I think we really have to, you know, take a much more agile approach to saying, okay, how do we, you know, make this go faster uh, and cut through some other bureaucracy. And I can tell you for us in the Army, we actually submitted a set of standards up to the joint staff last year, and we're still looking for that to get codified by NATO. So, so I think it is, this is a team sport. And from a governance perspective, you know, you know I mean, let's, let's, let's make one thing clear. JADC2 is not an acquisition program. It is not a system. Right? It is really a construct of how we're going to work together in, in the future in, in, with data in ways that we're not used to in the past. And if you keep the focus on data, if we keep the focus on some of those enabling technologies like, you know, having a network that we can all, you know, uh, that we can all use so we can take an application that the Army has and, and be able to put that on an Air Force network and, and vice versa, if we work through common standards and common playbooks for how we're going to work together, 
I think we get much closer to JADC2. If we look at this you know, as one big acquisition program of some sort and we're trying to talk about you know, joint program offices and so on, then I think we're just getting uh, an additional level of complexity added to us from, a, from an acquisition lens, while you know, the, the focus always has to be about the data. And it's like I said, you know, it's at, at the end of the day, it's all about the data. Raj Iyer, the CIO of the Army with the former Deputy Director for Data Strategy and Innovation at the National Counterterrorism Center, Vimesh Patel. You can find a link to the videos of that and all the Defense Talk sessions in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.